want to focus over the next couple weeks, not what were the gifts that King Jesus received. I want to focus more on the gifts that King Jesus gives. And we will examine some places in the New Testament that say that Jesus, in his life and in his death and burial and resurrection, has now gifted to us gifts from a king that we as his followers get to enjoy. And today, I want to focus on the gift of hope. And I'm not sure if you've thought about hope uh, very often, but hope is something that is all through the scriptures that I think it's important for us to understand and to perhaps even grow in. I want to start by defining it. Hope is uh, a confident expectation that good is around the corner. So hope is future-oriented. It has this trust and this belief that better days are yet ahead. This is why the New Testament will tell us in Corinthians that if you plow, you plow in hope. You don't plow the field for the fun of it. You plow in the hope that you will plant some seed and you will yield a harvest one day. You are plowing with a confident expectation that a harvest is around the corner, right? This is why Romans will tell us even more bluntly that hope that is seen is not hope. That hope is future-oriented. It's looking and saying, around the corner, I believe something good is saying. In 2 Thessalonians 2, tells us that Jesus has gifted us some stuff, among which is hope. And I want to read that with you. Listen to this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us, has given us two things, everlasting consolation and good hope. And both of these are through grace. You catch that? That Jesus and the Father, they have gifted to us, given to us, this eternal comfort, this everlasting consolation, and they have gifted to us a good hope. Good meaning excellent or distinguished. That Jesus has given his people an excellent or a distinguished, a unique hope that the rest of the world does not get. This is actually why Hebrews chapter number six will tell us that this good hope that Jesus gives to his followers is a, quote, anchor for the soul. Now, I don't know about you, but I am interested in an excellent hope that's an anchor for my soul. Now, you're probably doing some shopping, according to Dave. He's doing no shopping yet, and you're going to do some shopping later on, perhaps, guys. But you are not going to find on Amazon or on the shelves of Walmart an anchor for your soul. That's just something that money is not going to be able to buy. That's an intangible asset that is absolutely priceless that Jesus gives us through this hope. Now, hope is crucial. And Christians and non-Christians alike generally recognize this. Because humans are shaped by a belief of what their future holds. This is something that makes us very unique in that we can logic and we can reason, we can plan, we can dream, and we can think about what our future holds, and that shapes who we are today. This is why on the negative side of this, if you believe deep down that all hope is lost, that they really are better off without you, that there are no greater days ahead, then you may be tempted to do yourself physical harm and swallow the pills because you believe that deep down. It's why if we believe that a baby is coming, a, a lady who's maybe four months pregnant or five months pregnant, they will begin to order their day-to-day -day right now based on the good that is around the corner. 
I know four months from now a baby's coming, so I need to have a baby shower, and I have to get the crib, and I need to get the diapers and the wipes and the purple hippo and all of the videos showed. I need to get all those things in order. Why? Because I believe something's happening in the future, right? What we believe about the future shapes how we live and operate today. In a spiritual way, it's no different. If I really believe what the Bible says, that I can lay up for myself treasures in heaven, but on earth moth and rust do corrupt, then I will be generous in this life. Hope is important. Clifford Gertz, who was perhaps the most influential anthropologist for 30 years in the 20th century, served at Princeton and Harvard, and he would say a lot of things that I disagree with, uh, but I do agree with him on this point. He says that humans without hope are, quote, a formless monster with no sense of direction. Now, he's using pumped-up language to try to draw our attention to the fact that when we don't have hope, it is a detriment and it is not good for us. And on that point, I and the Bible agree with Gertz. If we don't have hope, that is extremely painful and extremely detrimental. But hope is offered. And there is not just a hope, but a good and excellent and distinguished hope that's an anchor for our soul that is offered to us in Jesus. And my goal this morning is quite simple that you would become a more hopeful person, even if it's only a baby step. My goal is that your home would become a more hopeful home and that our congregation would become a more hopeful congregation, even though I don't think we're entirely lacking in this, that we would grow in what it means to be hopeful people. And I want you to recognize yourself somewhere on uh, this continuum to try to figure out which stage am I in. And these stages will make sense in a minute, but here are four stages. And these are just my observations, but I'll have some biblical backup for them. Stages of hopefulness. There is consciously incompetent. There is unconsciously incompetent. Then there's consciously competent or unconsciously competent. You say, I have no idea what you're talking about, pastor. Good. Let me explain. So take driving a car for an example. There may be some in the room that would be consciously incompetent of driving a car. You are above the age required to have your permit or your license, but maybe you've never gotten your license and you don't plan on doing so. You do not want to drive. Now, I don't know a lot of people like that, but I know a few people like that that live in metropolitan areas and just take the subway and they don't know how to drive and they're not planning on learning. I know some, some people here in our area, or even our church, that are like, nope, don't drive. I, I don't want to. I've chosen to be. Maybe it's a category of driving. Maybe it's like I drive, but in the snow, nah. I've, I don't know how to drive in the snow. I'm not trying to learn how to drive in the snow. I'm conscious of it, but I'm incompetent and I don't plan on changing. Okay, so that, that'd be one. Then there's unconsciously incompetent. This would be like my children. Seriously. My children don't know how to drive a car, but they're not really thinking about it. They've not thought through, do I want to learn to drive? Do I not want to learn to drive? All they know is I get in the box on wheels, and a few hours later we show up for Thanksgiving, ta-da, right? Like that's all they know. They're not thinking about it. They're just kind of naturally incompetent, unconsciously. But then eventually, when they maybe turn 16 or they get their permit, I'll sit next to them and I will begin to teach them how to drive, right? And then they will begin to become consciously competent of what it means to drive a vehicle. They'll be competent enough because the the learner's permit test will have told them, hey, okay, you passed the test, you know what the yield sign means, go ahead, you can drive under the supervision of someone else who knows what they're doing. But they'll be extremely conscious, right? You remember what it was like when you first learned to drive? 
You sit in the driver's seat. All right, where's that, where's that gas pedal? Where's that brake pedal? How do, how, I feel like my foot's going to get hooked under the brake pedal. I'm going to have to like look down to figure out where it's at. And you're very cognizant. It starts to rain. And where, which button is the wipers? And, and you're just, you're, you're, your mind is spinning on how to drive this car. But you do it long enough. And eventually it's weird. You become unconsciously competent in regards to driving. You hop in the car, you start it up, you're not even thinking about it. Your mind is, is on work and on family and on Christmas presents. You're not thinking about where you're going. You know the stop signs, you know how to do it. And you drive an hour to grandma's house for Christmas and you get there and you're like, which route did I take? You don't even know, you just showed up. That's a good place to be, right? Now, if you can use that as, as an example, then you can understand hope. Hope follows those same stages. And each of you are in one of those four. So there are some, I doubt it's many of you, but there are some that are consciously incompetent in regards to hope. They have consciously thought about life, how it works, what is to come, and they have determined of their own volition that there is no reason for hope, that it's hopeless. A great illustration of this is Bertrand Russell, who was a prominent philosopher in the 20th century and is still taught in many philosophy classes and in our universities. And Russell said this, I'm going to quote him. Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. So here's what he's saying. You're not here for a purpose. There is no intelligent design. There is no God who made you or designed you with some sort of vision for a purpose in the future. Like That's, that's not there. He goes on to say, man's origin, growth, hopes, fears, loves, beliefs, are the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. They are all destined to extinction in the vast death of our solar system. You get what Bertrand's saying? He's saying it's all an accident. Nobody designed this. Nobody caused this. It's just because it is sheer happenstance. And one day you will die and you will go on the ground. And one day the sun will burn up our planet. And one day this planet and everything we did and all the memories and all the legacy, all of it is destined to extinction and it will all be gone and it will not matter. That's what he's saying. I thought about this and this is the conclusion I've come to. And it's on that belief that Bertrand says this, last quote, only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. See what he does? Build your life on that. And I, I get where he's coming from to some degree. He's saying, let's not build our life on lies. Let's not pretend. Let's build our lives on the truth. And the truth that I believe is really the evolutionary theory taken to its logical conclusion that this was all accidental and it'll all be accidental in the future and it won't ultimately matter when it's all said and done. So let's build our lives upon, quote, the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Let's have no hope. Why should we believe that good is around the corner? That's what he says. Now, I don't know if that's you, but you may work with people like this. You may be there. You may have thought it through and you say, that's where I land. I am, I am consciously incompetent when it, in regards to hope. Probably not you, you, but you may fall in the second category, unconsciously incompetent. Hey, this is the category of I'm despairing, but I don't really know why. I didn't plan on being hopeless. I didn't plan on despairing. I didn't plan to 
not have hope in this moment, but I'm there right now. I didn't choose it. I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? What should I do today? I know. I should eliminate hope from my life. That sounds like a great idea. You never did that. But some of you know what it's like to be in a season where you feel hopeless. Where it is all dark and it is all gloom and you just can't see for the life of you good around the corner. Some of you may be there today. This month is the month where there are the, the highest rate of suicides because people get to that point in the month of December with all the glee and all the jolly and all the merriment. They're reminded that perhaps that used to be and it's not anymore and they become very hopeless. This, this honestly is very biblical that there are, there are authors of the Bible who find themselves in these moments. David would say in Psalm 42, why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? You see the questions? Why am I hopeless? I, I, I don't get it. I didn't choose this. Why am I despairing? I am, and I don't know why. I like the way that the poet Abraham Cowley put it 400 years ago. In the 1600s, he wrote this poem called The Despair. And what's amazing to me is now 400-something years later, his words still ring true, and we know exactly what he's saying. He wrote in The Despair, he said, Beneath this gloomy shade, only for my sorrows I'm made. I'll spend this voice in cries, in tears I'll waste these eyes. Some of you know what it's like to waste your eyes in tears. And to have a season, or maybe a prolonged season, of I feel very, very despondent. Now, no one wants really to be there, but oftentimes we find ourselves there. I think Roy Sullivan is a great example of this. Roy is a Guinness World Record holder for something I would never want to be a world record holder of. Roy holds the record for the man or woman who was struck by lightning the most times and survived. Roy was struck by lightning not once, not twice, not three, not four, not five, not six, seven times. He claims he was struck an eighth time when he was a child, but it couldn't be verified, and, and we don't know for sure. There's not a record of it. But seven times verified, he was struck by lightning. He was a park ranger, and as the storms came in and he did his job, it just, the way it worked out, he got it seven times. Roy was married four times. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I think that, like, after the fourth lightning strike, I would throw my hands up. <laughs> like, what is going on, right? Seven times he survived. At age 74, Roy committed suicide. In his uh, note, he explained why, and it was because he believed that his fourth wife didn't love him. Now, I don't know how someone can make it through seven lightning strikes in marriage number one and marriage number two and marriage number three, but for some reason, the love of marriage number four is just the end and causes him to despair. I don't, I don't know why that happened. I don't know that Roy would know why that happened. But it did. And oftentimes we can find ourselves, that I've, oh man, I've got through that, and I've got through that, and I've got through that, but all of a sudden we're blindsided, and there's this sneak attack of hopelessness that comes upon us, and we are unconsciously incompetent when it comes to hope. Hopefully we can eventually grow to be consciously competent. This is the idea of, you know what, I have to work at it, 
I got to look down and go, where's the gas pedal? Where's the brake here? I got to be very mindful of this. But if I am mindful of this, I can, I can be hopeful. If I am mindful of this, I can drive the car that's, that's called hope. This actually is kind of where David takes it in Psalm 42 when he says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? He goes on to follow it up and say, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. David has this moment where he says, you know what? I'm not going to drift on the emotional lazy river any longer. I am going to have a moment where I'm going to hope in God, even if it means I have to go upstream against my heart. This isn't how I feel. This inside, I feel very despondent, but I'm going to take a time out, and I'm going to work at hoping in God. I'm going to go to the gym of God's word. I'm going to pick up the weight of hope, and I'm going to curl this bad boy. Even though it's hard for me, I'm going to hope in God. The fourth category is where you want to ultimately be, which is unconscious incompetency. This is the idea that hope oozes out of you because it's part of who you are. Now, normally, this takes work. Normally, it takes a lot of conscious competency in order to get to this point. And what's amazing to me is that if you read the New Testament, the apostles ooze with hope. And it's almost as if they have steeped their heart in the hope of the gospel and that they have begun to learn what it means to hope in Jesus. You know, the gospel is a word that means, and you fill in the blank for me, okay? There's, by definition, gospel means good, okay? We focus on the good a lot. It is good. It is hopeful. It is joyous. But it also is news, which means you didn't come with it baked into your software, right? You have to learn it. Someone has to tell you and teach you, and you have to investigate it, and you, have to, you actually have to take it in. And sometimes we forget that, that the gospel is something that I need to be learning and educating. It needs to be news to me. And they had found a way to remind themselves of the news of the gospel so much that they become extremely hopeful when you read Paul's writings or when you read John's writings, even through Revelation, as we've gone through that, we've seen these condemnations and we've seen these judgments, but they almost always end with these notes of hope that God is not finished and that Jesus is coming back and that he's given us a new name and a white stone and manna and all these sorts of things. It always ends on a note of hopefulness. We'll see this actually as we get back to Revelation in January. The chapters 4 through 19-ish are, I mean, they're dark and they're hard and there's wrath and there's judgment, but the book ends in the most hopeful way you could possibly ever end with new heavens and new earth and glory and God ruling and reigning and it's beautiful. And these guys had figured out what it was like to be hopeful. That if hope was a gift, they knew what it was like to unwrap it and to play with it. And if hope was a bike, they knew what it was like to ride that bike. And if hope was a person, they knew that person. And the Bible teaches us that hope is a person, that Jesus Christ is our hope of glory. That there was something that they had learned on how to be hopeful and how to be unconsciously competent. And here's the point of the sermon. The point is that I want you to grow in your hopefulness. And I want you to, at the very least, work on your conscious competency in regard to hope. And if you can do that long enough, it may be that you become unconsciously incompetent. It may be, or competent, excuse me. It's a mouthful, I know. 
And maybe that eventually you get to the point where it's like, this just comes out of me. This is just a part of me. This is who I am. I am a hopeful person because I've worked on it. So here's the question. How do you work on it? Biblically. How do you engage yourself in hopefulness? There's three ways I want to give you quickly. Number one is look way up. Look way up. This is the truth that you find over and over again when people are despondent, that they eventually take their eyes off of themselves and put their eyes up on God, and it begins to turn the corner for them. The best example maybe I could give of this is the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations, as you might expect, is a lament. It is a despondent, dark, gloomy, sorrowful book. But right in the middle of the book of Lamentations is this one ray of sunshine. It is this hopeful note in the middle of all that is going wrong. It's in Lamentations 3. And the author has just got done saying, I'm going to paraphrase here, that he is very sad, he is very dark, that he's desolate. He goes on to say that God is seemingly playing target practice with him, and God's just like messing with his life. Uh, He says that he's filled with bitterness, and then he literally says, my strength and my hope is gone. And on the heels of my strength and my hope is gone, here's, here's what we read. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. You get that? This is a moment where, where it's, I'm not going to be wrapped up in how I feel exclusively in this, in this moment. I am going to hope in God. Now get the tension. I I want you to know the Bible never says, stuff your feelings, don't tell God that you're despairing, that, you know, you can't do that. The psalmist, lamentations over and over again. Habakkuk, you can read people that express in prayer to God, God, this is how I feel and it's not good. But if you leave it there and you never take a time out, And you say, I'm going to set aside for a moment how I feel. And I'm going to go back to the truths of God's word. And I'm going to anchor off, an anchor for my soul. I'm going to anchor off that God is faithful. And God is right. And God is big and strong and kind and loving and merciful. That I need to go back to that. I can't just end it with, this is how I feel, the end. I have to look not just in, but way up. And I have to put my eyes on him. You ever have a day where it just hasn't been a great day and you would love with everything in you just to vent to somebody? But then there's someone else who's having a rough go of it and they beat you to the punch and they pick you to vent to. Ever have that happen? Where they come to you to vent and you're like, have mercy. If you only knew what I could vent to you, right? You know what the mature thing to do in that moment is? It's not to say, yeah, I hear you. Let me one-up you and let me pour back out at you. The mature thing to do in that moment is to set aside your frustrations or your despair or whatever you're going through for 10 minutes and to listen and to be empathetic and to think about what they're going through. That's the mature thing to do. 
And it's that very same muscle that isn't easy to exercise, but you have to exercise when it comes to you being consciously competent of what it means to be hopeful and looking way up. That you have to say, okay, this is how I feel, and this is what I'm going through, and I may pour some of that out to the Lord, but now, if I could set it aside for 10 minutes for my buddy who would vent to me, I can set it aside for 10 minutes for God. I'm going to put this to the side for a minute, and I'm going to focus on the Lord, and it's not going to be about me any longer. I'm going to look at him, and I'm going to praise him, and I'm going to thank him, and I'm going to worship him, and I'm going to get my eyes off of my situation and off of the turmoil and off of whatever is going on that may, in fact, be bad, but I will look at him and focus on him, at least for a brief period of time. That is how you grow in hopefulness. You look way up. This is why Peter would tell us that we, through Jesus, believe in God, the God that raised Jesus up from the dead and gave Jesus glory. And here's what he says, that your faith and your hope might be in God. We have through Jesus the ability to have faith in God and to have hope in God. And sometimes our problem isn't that we weren't trying to be hopeful or we didn't see that there was no good around the corner, but we put our hope in the wrong stuff. We put our hope in that relationship and our spouse really disappointed us. And we put our hope in our kids and our kids hurt us. And we put our hope in our money and the money grew wings and flew away. And we put our hope in our health, and the health begins to fail. And we put our hope in politicians, and that never goes well, right? Sometimes where we're left despondent, the reason we are is because we put our hope in this and this and this, and then they don't deliver, and all of a sudden now we're despairing because I can't hope in that any longer, and it's gone. It's not an option, and then we're stuck. What do you do in that moment? You put your hope back to where it needs to go. You migrate back to the north, and you go back to God, and you look way up, and you put your hope in him because he is faithful, and he doesn't disappoint. So you look way up. Secondly, you look way back. There's lots of places I could illustrate this, but Romans tells us this. It tells us that the things that were written in the Old Testament, that those stories and those Bible passages were written for our learning or for our education, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What is it saying? It's saying that the Bible gives us hope, certainly. But more specifically, it's saying that the things that are past, the things where, where God delivered them and God helped them, or maybe past even in your own life, uh, I can go back to where he saved me and I can go back to his mercies right there. Even though I can look back at bad stuff, I can also look back at his faithfulness and his goodness in my life and that there is something that causes us to hope forward when we look back to his greatness. This is what the Hebrews 11 chapter is all about. It's the faith chapter, but faith is the substance of things hoped for. So let's take a minute and let's have faith, the substance of things hoped for, and let's remember Moses. Let's remember Abraham. Let's remember Enoch. Let's remember all of these saints of old and see what God did in their life, and that will cause us to have faith and hope in God, right? The idea is if you're stuck in this moment right here, and all you can see, you have blinders on, all you can see is what happened yesterday and what may happen tomorrow. And you have no sense of what God's done in your life in the past. You've lost it. And you have no sense of what he's going to do in the future. 
That's a painful place to be. You want to be able to look way up and you want to be able to look way back and then you want to be able to look way ahead. And this is what comes off the page over and over again in the New Testament when hope's talked about because hope is a forward thing. You don't plow unless you do it with hope. If it's seen, it's not hope. It's a forward thing. Good's around the corner. And you find that the Bible tells us we have so much, if we'll stop and we'll think, to hope in. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms that Jesus will come back. I love that we, we sang that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this morning. Matt did a great job of setting that up, that it talks about Israel's hope that a Messiah would come, that the Messiah did come, and now our hope that the Messiah will come again. It's beautiful. That's why the second coming of Jesus is called the blessed hope. That's what we look forward to. We're told not only do we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, we're told that we look beyond this life to eternity. This is why Paul would write that if in this life only we have hope, then I am of all men most miserable. If all I have to hope for is this vapor of a life, then yeah, Bertrand Russell is right. That's not much to be hopeful for. But if there is life beyond this life, if there is, as Jesus promises, everlasting life or eternal life, if there is more to come, if, if this is not all that there is, then I have something to look forward to. Then I have something to be hopeful for. Even if this life I suffer immensely, even if in this life I, I go through pain and heartache and turmoil, even if it's not peachy today, I can look forward beyond this life. Good is around the corner, even if it's after I'm in the ground, with the notation that I'll be up out of the ground again one day. I hope in that, right? This is why Paul will tell us in Colossians that we hope in heaven. Not just the second coming of Jesus, not just eternity, but specifically in heaven for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Hope in that. What is he saying? Take some time and think about the future. Think about what God has in store for his people. Think about that one day all the wrongs will be made right. That everything that's crooked will be straight. And everything that's broken will be mended. Everything that's sad will become untrue. Take a minute and know that for a Christian you have the promises of God. Those aren't fairy tales. Those aren't fables. Those aren't, that's not wishful thinking. That is a rock-solid assurance based on the promises of Jesus that that is coming one day. That one day my flesh and my sin that I struggle with will be no more. One day my disease and sickness that riddles this body will be gone. One day righteousness will be pervasive. One day peace will prevail. One day that is coming and you look forward to that. And here's the point. If you can take five minutes, five minutes tomorrow and the next day, and you for the next six days this week, you can take five minutes and say, you know what? For 90 seconds, roughly, I'm going to think way up. I'm going to go way up. I'm going to think about God. I'm going to praise God. I'm going, I'm going to remember who is God. He is faithful. He is true. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is, he is always present. He, he's all-loving. If I can do that for 90 seconds. If I can take 90 seconds and think about the goodness of God in my past. I can take another 90 seconds and think about what the future holds for me. Thy kingdom come. I promise you, 
If we each do that for five, five minutes for the next six days, church next Sunday will be better. It's not because church today is lacking, but it will be a more hopeful bunch of people that gather together thinking about who God is, thinking about his goodness in the past, thinking about the promises he has for us in the future, and that makes an impact. And I want you, my challenge to you is that you would do that. It's that simple. That you would take five minutes a day for the next six days and that you would be consciously competent in regards to hope, that you'd look way up and way back and way ahead, and that together as a congregation, we could grow in this. And if you want to do it for six days after that, go ahead, be my guest. But my challenge is that you do it for a week.